But here in Isaiah 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And we're going to read about the Messiah's blessing. And in this section, there's going to be 11 different points. We're not going to tarry long on some of them. Obviously, we can't with 11 points. Some of them we hit last week. It'll be a refresher. Uh, but what is it that Jesus came to do in his first coming and his second coming? Of these 11 points, not all of them were fulfilled in his first coming. So how do we deal with that? Well, wait a minute. The Messiah is supposed to fulfill prophecy. Absolutely. He is supposed to, and he has. But there are some aspects of the prophecies of the prophets that are still yet to be fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled in his second coming. So we'll try and make a distinction between the two comings as we go through this passage. But let's begin reading there at verses 1 and 2. Um, and here we get a look, we'll kind of set the, the historical context for this passage. Just like in Isaiah chapter 6 last week, it was King Ahaz, right, who was said, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do something, ask and I'll show you a sign. He's like, I don't want signs, I don't want to test God. And God said, well, I'm going to give you a sign, the virgin's going to have a child. The context as we come into chapter 9 is looking back at some destruction that had happened to a northern part of Israel and the Galilee region among the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali and how they were among the hardest hit when earlier in history, earlier as when Isaiah's writing, uh, the Assyrians came in around 722 B.C. and just devastated the area. So we pick up reading at verse 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. Being up in this part of the world uh, of Israel, was a, it was death. The Assyrians were coming. They were marching through. It was not a time of rejoicing. It was not a time of light and uh, sweet fellowship. It was a time of destruction. It was a time in which God was allowing the Assyrians to be a rod of chastening against his people Israel that has sinned and rebelled. But the Lord says here, it's not going to always be like that. There's a time of chastening that comes when we disobey the Lord. But the Lord also heals. And the Lord also helps us to recover. And I don't know, I didn't say this in any of the other two services, but I just want to say this. Maybe you're one that's coming back from a time of chastening and you're thinking, there's no blessing for me. I'll just be lucky to be even in the building if it doesn't fall down. No, you have way more than that to expect. The Lord wants to shine his light upon you. He wants to pour out his blessings upon you. So keep in mind as we go through this section of scripture and we read of this chastening they had, that now the Lord is looking forward to the blessings that he wants to bring upon them. So Galilee was an area that was the headquarters for Jesus. And this is what Matthew brings up in Matthew 4, verses 13 through 16. He says, in leaving Nazareth, right? Jesus Christ uh, uh, you know, was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And we just read the prophecy. So this part of the land that was so attacked and so ravaged by the Assyrians, 
becomes headquarters for Jesus and all of his ministry. There's not a portion of the land of Israel that saw more ministry, concentrated ministry and teaching than this part of Israel. So when we read about them being oppressed and and all going on, just keep in mind that Jesus, as a, a show of mercy and grace, the Lord's saying, I know you've gone through this, but you're going to have one of the biggest blessings you could ever imagine. And we're going to read through it, and you know, a son's going to be born and so forth. He's going to bring peace. He's going to you know, destroy the oppressor. What, is, what do we read in Scripture? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. That's not just a New Testament concept. That's a God concept. That is who our maker is. God was not just gracious in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It was all law and destruction. There's grace all throughout the Old Testament. And here's one more example as it relates to this geographical location that becomes headquarters for Jesus. Well, as Jesus begins to do ministry, we read there in verse 2 that the first thing that he brought is that he brought light. Those who were in the land all right, excuse me. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon them light has shined. Darkness in Scripture speaks of a separation from God. It speaks of hard times. It speaks of difficult times. It speaks of a time of judgment. It speaks of sin. So this is a, a dark and lighter metaphors that are used throughout the Scriptures. But here, this darkness that they were in, thinking of that invasion of the Assyrians. And listen. I'm not going into details, so don't worry. I know we got kids in here. But the Assyrians were so terrible that people took their lives before they would fall into their hands. They were, they would torture people. And so this was a desperate time, a dark time. But the Lord says, light's going to come. You've rebelled against me. You've experienced my chastening. But there's going to come a time, and my son is going to be there in your midst, and he is going to shine light to you. That had been there. Now, this is generations later, and yet the Lord is still remembering. In Luke chapter 1, verses 78 through 79, we read, Through, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the Lord's doing, to bring light to mankind. The Lord does not want people to sit in darkness. He doesn't want people to grope about trying to find out what is the meaning of life and what is the purpose of life and what should I do with you know, this problem in my life. He wants us to have light. Light is a good thing. If, if you know, kids get scared or you get scared or I get scared, a good thing to do is turn on the light. right? Turn on the light. What's that noise? We'll flick it on. Or sometimes we need the light to be able to see what we're doing. You know, you get out of the car and it's dark and it's like, man, you get your flashlight and you're, you're like using your flashlight to see where you're going so you don't bump into something. Light is something that's important. You actually, you value light the older you get because you can't see as well and it takes more light to see well. And, and, and so this is the metaphor that's used. One that's associated with comfort, one that's associated with you know, illuminating a path. Jesus has brought this light to the world. And the world needs the light of Jesus, don't you think? And this world is so dark. 
And, and, and they're, they're separated from the Lord. And there's so many that are trying to figure out how to live life. And they're groping about in the darkness. And what's happening to them in their spiritual life and in their existence is exactly what happens to us physically when we try to chart a course without light. You bump into things and you, it's painful. But Jesus need, people need the light of Jesus and he has brought that light. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If, if life seems dark and shadowy and uncertain and, and confusing, then you need the light of Jesus. And, and you will know. And the things you don't know are okay because the one who has saved you and redeemed you, he knows those areas. And so where you don't have light, you can say, it's all right, because I know the one who does know what is ahead of me. We know that when Jesus came, he was a light to the entire world. But you know, a lot of them didn't want that light, did they? Jesus came and he was an offense to them. He exposed them. You think about the scribes and the Pharisees. What did Jesus say to them over and over? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And then he would point out some uh, form of hypocrisy, some form of oppression, some form of uh, thievery or love of money. And he would rebuke them for that. Now listen, he's the light of the world. He's the Son of God. They should have come and they should have knelt and they should have bowed. They should have been like Peter when Peter recognized his mistake. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and he says, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man. Well, that's not what most of the world did when they saw the light of Jesus Christ. They rejected him. The word reject is uh, a word that means to examine and flunk. So don't think of reject as in, you know, somebody's calling to tell you that your car insurance warranty has expired. Does anybody get that phone call? Like, they love us, don't they? Man, they really are into their insurance. Um, I don't give, like, I say hello. Boom. I mean, if you ever call me, you better say hello fast. Because I like, I'm not waiting for that computer to hear me then to kick in and start talking. Right? You're doing the same things I'm doing. So I, I don't examine what they have to say. I'm not talking to them, having a conversation. And 20 late minutes later, after talking to the telemarketer, saying, you know what? I don't think so. That is to examine and flunk. That's what they did with Jesus. It wasn't like, somebody, I think Jesus might, I don't want to talk about it. No, it wasn't that. They looked at him closely. They listened to what he had to say. They considered his miracles. They considered the people that he had raised from the dead and then plotted to kill those people so that they couldn't go around saying Jesus is a great guy who has the power to raise people from the dead. They examined him for three years of full-time ministry, 33 years of life, and they said, crucify him. They examined him and rejected him because he exposed their deeds and they loved their unrighteousness and their sinful ways more than they loved the light that he brought and wanted to give them so they can know how to be eternal life. The second thing that Jesus brings, the Messiah brings, verse 3, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So he uses two examples, one from an agrarian kind of a mindset. Farmers care about their crops. They care about their livestock. Soldiers, they cared about the spoils. And he says that there is going to be greater joy in this region 
when the light of Jesus Christ comes, and when the light comes to all people, then a farmer at the time of harvest. Even a lot of the feasts of Israel are centered around the harvest, right? This is a time of celebration. This is a time of joy. All of your hard work is finally paying off. And this is what Jesus wants to bring. He wants to bring them joy. Again, they didn't receive him. But of course, if you're Lazarus and you're Mary and you're Martha, you had incredible joy. If you're Jairus, when your little girl was raised from the dead, there was incredible joy. If you're the paralytic man who was told to stand up and walk, that his sins were forgiven, there was incredible joy. If you're the Samaritan woman who had the Jewish Messiah come and reveal himself to you and share all your secrets but say, there's a place for you, come and drink of me and I'll make you, uh, give you water that, you'll, that never will go dry. It will keep filling up over and over like a fountain of living water. Oh, there was all kinds of joy. But there are many that didn't, and they rejected him. But you know, this kind of gets into the second coming. When Jesus comes a second time, the remnant of Israel that is remaining, so future from our day right now, the second coming, when the remnant of Israel is about to be wiped out at the end of the Great Tribulation and the Battle of Armageddon, when that's about to happen, that remnant is going to awaken The Lord will pour out upon them a spirit of awareness and supplication. And they will call upon Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. Yeah, it's going to have been at least 2,000 years, right? That's where we are now. And after 2,000 years, they're going to come around and they're going to say, wait a minute. Jesus of Nazareth, whom our forefathers crucified, he is the one. And they will call upon him. And in that very instant, just like when you called upon Jesus, and when I called upon Jesus, Jesus didn't wait 10 years to come to me. It was that instant. We call upon him and we're saved. And that is going to be what happens to the remnant of Israel. And then all of Israel calling upon him, they will be saved. And there is going to be such joy. Because they're delivered from the one that's coming to destroy them the Antichrist, they're going to have finally have embraced their Messiah and all of the promises will be fulfilled. So he brings that kind of joy. Luke 2.10, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great, what? Great joy. I bring you good tidings of, yeah, so it's some okay news. It's not the greatest news. No, it's great joy. I've got some amazing news and it's going to be to all people. It's not going to be just to you, Israel, and it's not going to be just to one class of people. It's to all people and to all classes, and that is salvation is found in the Lord. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. When Jesus comes into our lives, when we yield to him and we let him lead us with his light, you will know a fullness of joy. It's a fullness of joy that remains. It doesn't just come for a little bit and then goes away. It's not like you get saved, you got the joy, and now you you kind of survive and just barely get by for the rest of your Christian experience. No, not at all. It's a full joy, and it's a joy that remains. David knew this to be true when he wrote Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, there are many who say, who will show us any good? There are a lot of people that feel like that. Is there there anything good out there? And he responds, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. The light. There it is again. 
You've put gladness in my heart more than in the season. Like that. That's a very happy, joyful little scream there. More than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He understood that when the world is saying, can anything bring joy? He says, I know that the Lord, if you will look upon us, we will have joy. If that is true for Jesus, for uh, David, who did not know Jesus, Jesus had not come. How much more is that for us who understand the full truth of the gospel, who have embraced Christ as our Savior, who dwells within us? There's joy for us, and there's a full joy. If it's true under the old covenant, how much more? And Jesus said it himself, I want you to have full joy. You know, we've had a year where there's not been a lot of reason to rejoice over the news. Now, granted, that's kind of the way news works, too, because they realize that you're going to respond to fear and bad news a lot more than you're going to respond to good news. Has anybody ever said to themselves, why does one person's criticism mean more to me than 10 people who love me? It's just, it's just kind of, it's sad that it works that way, but that's, that's kind of what happens. And so, I mean, the news wires themselves in such a way to really draw upon that in us. But when the news, when Habakkuk pondered bad news as uh, one who knew the value of farming, And one who had livestock, he says, though the fig tree, it's Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. It's the same as saying, as though I work all day long and I get no paycheck. It means exactly the same thing. These are desperate times. If you're a farmer and the crops are failing, if you're attending to animals and there's, there's no animals in the stalls, you don't get a worst case scenario. And yet, verse 18 says, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Salvation takes center stage, right, for the, for the prophet. He says, if everything goes wrong, I've still got joy. And I still can be rejoicing because I've got a relationship with my maker. And this is what Jesus has come to bring, is to bring joy. I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly, right? He wants you to be overflowing in the fullness of his presence in your life. The Lord offers direction and clarity in your life. And he has come to bring you joy. Now I realize most of us in here are believers. And so you know of that joy. But I would just say, there's, there's, you can go deeper. You can go deeper in that joy. And are you going deeper? Maybe there was a time you look back and say, well, I used to really have joy in my life. There was such a fullness, but, but now it's gone because all of these bad things have happened. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 was written for you then. I think Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 was probably written for 2020, actually. I mean, it doesn't matter what goes on in the world. It doesn't matter what goes on in my personal life. I will rejoice in my God. And I don't have to look and take the temperature of what's going on because the the thermostat's already been set to joy in my life by my maker. So joy is there for you. It is there for me. If we are not walking in that joy, then all I can say is you need to get closer to Jesus. You need to spend more time. 
You need to wait longer. You need to tarry longer. You need to experience more of Him and His presence and His Word in your life. What else does He bring? In verse 4, He brings freedom. For you have broken the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. A couple of things in here. He brings freedom, but he brings an end to war, you could also add here. War, there's going to come a day under Jesus when there will be no more war. People will not pick up weapons any longer. They're not going to fight. We actually read prophecies that the implements of war will be turned into the implements for farming. Rather than using to take life, those same implements will be used to sustain life. That's going to be under the rule and reign of Jesus. But he brings freedom. I think this is something that he did at his first coming, but he's also going to do in a very physical sense in his second coming. His first coming, well, Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We've been set free. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you've been set free from the power of Satan that was latched onto you and had you chained and was dragging you to the same eternal destruction in hell that he has. And Jesus came and he broke that bondage and he set you free from Satan. It's a real bondage. It's a real oppression. You don't necessarily see those chains with your eyes, but you can certainly see the effects of it. And some of you have a testimony and a story of how enslaved you were and how free you are now. Some of us have testimonies more like mine where I gave my life to Jesus at an early age. And the opportunity for Satan to enslave me was really the the opportunity was not there because I was in Christ from such a young child. And many of you have that testimony as well. But Jesus comes to set us free. He doesn't want us to be a bound people. He doesn't want us to be a people that are enslaved to our sins and our lusts and to our bitterness, to our pride. He's come to liberate us from all of those things. But when he comes again, he's going to liberate, in a physical sense, Israel that will be surrounded by the nations of the Antichrist to destroy. And so this is a prophecy that's going to have a dual fulfillment. Keep on reading in verse 6. And we read that, um, I have here, he brings a son, probably better to say brings humanity. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Some great titles here. But the first one we see is that humanity is going to come to this region. A son is going to be born. And Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. If you'd like to explore that a little bit more, our whole study last week was on that. We called it the incredible incarnation. But what this giving of a son, and it's just amazing to to contemplate that the eternal one took on the form of, of a human baby, became a man. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus came, and humanity came because He loves us. He needed a body to redeem us, to pay the penalty for our sins. 
The fifth thing that the Messiah brings, still in verse 6, and we're going to be in verse 6 for, for quite a while here, is that he brings a godly ruler. He brings godly leadership. When Jesus rules and reigns over this earth, he is going to be the best leader this world has ever seen. Now, when Jesus came in his first coming, there was no governmental authority that rested upon him. He did not control you know, senators and governors. He didn't do that. They took him and they crucified him. He submitted himself to them. But when he comes the second time, he is coming to rule and reign. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Can you imagine a planet that is ruled by King Jesus? How amazing. There'll be no more greed among our leaders. There'll be no more power grabs. There'll be no more corruptions. There'll be no more special counsels. There's not going to be any special investigations. Arrogance and privilege and ineptitude will be gone because Jesus will be ruling and he will be reigning. You will be in love with the government of that day. What a joy it will be to see him do this. Now when is that going to happen? Well, Jesus is coming again, and it will happen at the end of the tribulation when Israel is calling out for Israel, excuse me, for, for them to be saved by Jesus. And when that happens, he will come and he will establish a, a kingdom upon this world. Continue on, point number six, the Messiah brings power, and his name will be called Wonderful. So you're thinking, like, pow, he brings power. His name is wonderful. What's the connection? Well, a, a better way to understand this word wonderful is to think of wonders. He will be performing wonders and uh, will be doing the, the miraculous. He, people will marvel at the things that he does. Well, that certainly was the case. I mean, if you, again, I went through a list, but if you were the man that was healed, you know, uh, as a paralytic and you hadn't walked, can you imagine how you would have rejoiced over the power of Jesus in your life? If you were blind Bartimaeus calling out from the road Jericho up to Jerusalem, he says, Rabboni, Rabboni, and they're trying to get him to be quiet, and this man will not be quiet. He's screaming louder and louder, and I can just hear his voice getting more shrill and more shrill, cutting through the noise because he wants to be healed. And when his eyes were opened, imagine the joy or the, the person who could never talk or the child that was raised from the dead. There was such wonders that he did when he walked this earth. And he is still doing them through the Holy Spirit empowering the church today. Still in verse 6, the seventh thing we see is that Jesus brings counselor. He is a counselor to be trusted. But that's not just in the future. That's right now. Did you know that you can call upon Jesus? He will shine light and counsel upon your life. I just don't know what to do at work. Get into the Word. I don't know what to do with raising my kids. I don't know what to do with this enemy I have. Read the Proverbs. Read the Proverbs. Read the Gospels. Watch how Jesus dealt with people. Watch how He instructed other people to deal with hardships. And you will be counseled by the Lord. Colossians 2.3 says in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't this wise of the Father to take all the good stuff and hide it in His Son? 
where if we want it, we got to go dig into Jesus. If you want the wisdom, if you want the counsel, if you want that, the power, then come to Jesus and let him work in your life. You know, all of us know the value of having somebody that gives good counsel. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a true blessing in life when you have people around you that you can call upon and say, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think? And that they will actually take the time to listen. And that they are, their minds are saturated in the Word of God. That they are a man or they're a woman of prayer. And that they will they'll take the time to ask a few questions. They'll say, you know what? This is what you got to do. Even if it's not what you want to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Better to be wounded by a friend who's wounding you for your own protection than to be kissed by an enemy as you fall off the cliff. And, and the, to have a person like this is amazing. To have in your life, you know, we read of the, the psalmist saying that if the Lord strikes me, I will count it as kindness. Because it's better to be rebuked by the Lord and make a correction than to just go on your way and not have the voice of the Lord in your life. It's a kind thing when somebody counsels you and even says the hard thing to you. Don't get mad at them. You should, read, you should thank the Lord that there's that kind of a person in your life. A lot of times those people are called parents. Just in case you're wondering, young people. Not to say we're perfect. I say that the guiltiest people on planet Earth are Christian parents. We get it, we, we fail and we miss the mark, but to have a mom or a dad that wants to point you in the direction of Jesus and to tell you, wow, what kindness the Lord has shown to you. He showed to me. Number eight, mighty God. He brings deity, brings God or brings deity. Now, some people look at this and they say, see, Jesus is not fully God. He's only a mighty God. Like a little hero, not a superhero. He's like a sidekick. He's not, you know, a superhero. He's not God himself because God himself is almighty God. And this is just mighty God. That just speaks of the ignorance of Scripture and of the language. This phrase, mighty God, is a way to refer to deity. Um, and this is the case. Uh, so this always refers to a divine person. I think there's only one place in Scripture where it doesn't. I'll give you an example of how um, this word mighty is used of Yahweh. In uh, Isaiah 10, 21, it says, The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Now they're not referring to Jesus there because Jesus has not been born yet. So God takes on the title Mighty God, even in the Old Testament. But if you're still hung up on Almighty, then you can go to Revelation 1.8. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is speaking. says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. So when the Son came in human flesh, He also came with divinity. And those two natures were brought together. How great to have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's a man, but to have God who is there to overcome any problem or issue that we would face, he is there to help us through. Number nine, 
And this is, again, another title that I think probably if there's one title in this whole section that probably confuses us more than any other, it's this one that he is everlasting father, still in verse 6. But this is speaking of the creator of all is coming. When the Messiah came, he came as creator. Um, This is a Hebrew idiom, uh, everlasting father, and it describes the Messiah's relationship to time. It's a description of a relationship to time. So we read everlasting father, or you could could translate it this, author of eternity, or the author of the universe, or the maker of all things. Um, I already read Revelation 1.18, the beginning, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It speaks of that he's over all times of all and all circumstances. But write this reference down in, uh, there in Isaiah 9, verse 6, where you see everlasting Father, because it really will help you out the next time you read this and you forget. What did that mean again? Colossians 1.16 and 17 is a commentary on what everlasting Father means. And we read, For by him we were all, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. In other words, there is nothing that exists except that it came from Jesus. This is the idea of, the, of everlasting Father. He's over all time. So in our temporal walking, you know, temporary walk through this planet Earth, we have things that upset us as the news comes and as it goes, as we have conversations, as we open an email, as we take the phone call. We get the report at work in the doctor's office. And we have things that are happening one moment at a time. And it brings certain responses based upon the news. But in the midst of the bad news, when it comes, remember this one thing. You have an everlasting Father. You have one that dwells outside of time that is over all things. And He is caring for you and He is watching over you. Does that mean that He makes everything perfect and right and easy in this life? No. If you think that, you probably haven't read much of the New Testament because the Bible tells us that we will have many sufferings, many trials, many hardships. It, it announces to us that people will die, and we will lose people, that we will die. I mean, the Bible's pretty real with it. But you see, those are only temporary things. We have one that dwells outside of time, that's taking care of everything that's going to last forever. So though I may die, and if the Lord tarries long enough, I will, and so will you, and so will all of our loved ones. But you know what? Everlasting Father, Jesus, who is the author of eternity, If they are in Christ, he has them in their arms right now. My days are in his hands. He knows everything that touches my life and touches yours. He's in control. We're getting to the end. Two more points. Number 10, he is a prince of peace. He brings peace. Not just joy and not just light, but he brings peace to our life. Again, we go back to the night in which Jesus was born. And we read in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Not that we would have goodwill towards each other, but God has had goodwill toward man because he sent the Prince of Peace to make things right, to remove the enmity that existed between man 
and God. Jesus came as the mediator, as the go-between. He was the one that came to bring peace between us and the Lord. So Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he says this. So let me preface this by saying, well, what kind of peace is this really? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace of Jesus is the kind that settles a troubled heart. Does that sound like the kind of peace you need? The peace of Jesus is the kind that addresses fear in my life. This is what Jesus said, I've come to give and to leave with you, that this would abide over you. And like with joy, if you're not walking, believer, in the fullness of this peace, then you need to go spend some more time in the presence of Jesus. Now let me say this. We all have different makeups, right? We all have different things that challenge us in life. And for some people, it's just because of life and what's happened or just the way you're wired it seems like it's easier to fall into anxiety and fear than it is for other people, and that is true. But that does not make you a second-class citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Because that person, may, they may struggle with anger, or they may struggle with pride, or they may struggle with lust. or they may str- We've all have something that seems to be uh, easier for us to fall in than others. So don't, no, no beating up here. But there is real joy and there is real peace for you and for me. But it begins by coming to the Prince of Peace and making your life right with Him. Because until you come to Jesus and you repent of your sin, you cannot have peace with your Maker. But once you do, you have peace with God. But it's not just peace with God that He wants you to have. He also wants you to have the peace of God. Peace with God comes the moment we are saved. The peace of God is something I walk in because I know that everlasting Father is watching over me. And I know that the Prince of Peace has come and given this to me. There is a joy and there is a peace for you. There is real freedom. This is not just theological things to, you know, for people to talk about. It's not just Hebrew poetry, although it is. Hebrew poetry is not just meant to be something that's artistic and beautiful. It's meant to be what our reality and our existence with the Lord is. I hope that's the case for you. Maybe you say, well, it used to be. Well, you know how to come back. Come back to the first things you did. Come back to the very first things. Well, what's that? Get excited about going to church again. Get excited about reading the Bible and studying it. Get excited about worshiping and seeing brothers and sisters in Christ. Get excited about doing something that lasts for eternity for the King who saved you. Do the first works, because it's the first works that are going to see us to the end. It's really the first works are the last works. That's how we are to live our life. We close there in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
It's going to happen. It has happened. And those things that are yet to come will. And this last one is that Jesus is going to bring in an eternal reign. He will forever sit upon the throne of David. David was one of the kings of Israel. God gave a specific prophecy to David that he would have a descendant, and that descendant would forever sit upon the throne of David. Nobody is sitting upon the throne of David right now. But Jesus will return, and when he returns, he will rule and he will reign. He will destroy you know, those that come against Israel, and there will be a, a world of peace. And this is what is coming These 11, and I'm sure you can make a longer list than this, are all the things that the Messiah brings to us. And that's why we look for him. That's why we are excited by him. I want to close by reading to you this quote from John Calvin that I think beautifully summarizes this passage, and then we're going to pray. Whenever, in short, it appears to us that everything is in a ruinous condition, let us recall to our remembrance the Christ, that Christ is wonderful because he has inconceivable methods of assisting us and because his power is far beyond what we are able to conceive. When we need counsel, let us remember he is a counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, Let us rely on that eternity of which he is, with good reason, called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distress. When we are inwardly tossed by various tempests, and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that it is easy for him to quickly quickly allay all of our uneasy feelings. This, will these titles confirm us more and more in faith of Christ and fortify us against Satan and against hell itself. Christmas, we've made, we know it is a time to give a gift because it started out with the Father giving His Son and the Messiah coming. You know, you want to try and purchase these 11 things? Good luck. You can't buy them with any amount of money. If all the people of the world were to gather together and you were going to be the only one to get a gift and they were going to pull all of their resources together, you could not purchase one of these on this list. Because these are the gifts that the King of Kings gives to his children. We need to make a big deal about it. You need to make a big deal about it in your life. Jesus said, don't rejoice that you have victory over Satan. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. I think we all could do a better job, and I'll put my name at the top of the list, of rejoicing over our salvation. I'm redeemed. I'm saved. I know where I'm going. I've got a Savior who's given me light and peace and joy, and to make much over this salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. And Lord, indeed, it is true. What you have given us in these 11 things never will come apart from you. But it has come through you to us. And we just want to say thank you, Lord, for setting us free, for giving us light, for bringing joy, for being God in the flesh with us. 
so many blessings, so many treasures that we have in your Son. Lord, I pray for us as believers that we would walk in the fullness of it and that we will not allow the passing pleasures of this world to ever distract us from the the fullness of what we have that will never fade away. 